New Thinking Allowed. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the anomaly-prone personality. In other words, people who are prone to have spontaneous psychic experiences. My guest is Professor Christine Simmons-Moore, who is on the faculty in psychology at the University of West Georgia. She has worked as a researcher at the Rhine Research Center. She's been the recipient of two awards related to parapsychology, the Gertrude Schmeidler Award from the Parapsychological Association, and the D. Scott Rogo Award, named after my cousin Scott Rogo, from the Parapsychological Foundation. She is also co-author of the textbook on Anomalous Psychology, and she is editor of Exceptional Experience and Health, Essays on Mind, Body, and Human Potential. Now, I'll switch over to the internet interview. Welcome, Christine. It's a pleasure to have you on New Thinking Aloud. And it's a pleasure to be here today, Jeff. You've really spent a a career looking at personality variables and how uh, people who report largely spontaneous experiences are uh, correlated, I suppose, with various traits and states. Absolutely, yes. Um, But not just spontaneous cases, I'd say, because I've also... Um, been looking at how those traits and states translate into the lab and look to see whether sometimes they can actually correlate with genuine ESP and another um, evidence of non-local consciousness as well. And and do you find that uh, the laboratory studies are roughly equivalent to the spontaneous reports? In terms of subjective experiences, absolutely. Yes, I think that there is a correspondence between experiences out in the world and then experiences that happen in the lab. But in terms of actual um, ESP and um, other anomalies, there's less of a relationship, but there's something. Um, So I suppose I could talk about the synesthesia maybe to start with, because that's fresh in my mind. Um, Synesthetes tend to have more ghost experiences and they tend to have a whole range of other experiences out in the world Um, and we found that um, yeah synesthetes don't necessarily have more ghost experiences when they participate in a psychomantium which I thought was weird I thought that they would have more but then um, they did have some other interesting anomalies um, in our ghost study so they had um interesting interactions with space that wasn't happening in in the other group and so we had um yeah so we had two groups that came in and the synesthetes were um were interesting we'll say we need to define for our viewers who don't know what synesthesia is uh, what does it mean to be a synesthete and and also uh, what is the psychomantium Yes, we need to backtrack a little bit. Um, So synesthesia is often (laughs) defined as a condition, and I um, don't like that. Um, I think it is a way of being. And what it is, is um, a way of experiencing the world that is extra, we'll say. So most people might have a given response to a given stimulus. So, for example, I might be looking at your name on my screen and it says Jeff Mishlove. And I can see that written in white ink, essentially. So a synesthete would see that. But um, a color synesthete, a grapheme color synesthete, would also have an additional way of experiencing that. So they might have actually a color for your entire name. Um, or they might have specific colours for each of the letters um, in your name. And those colours might be a knowing, so they might be experienced sort of inside, um, or they might be experienced as sort of projected out into space. So I might, if I was a synesthete, I might see um, particular colours that are um, surrounding each letter of your name and then potentially 
um, or instead of a potentially a, a global color that sort of emanates from your name. So it's an extra way of being. So I'm using color because that's one of the um, more common ones, but there's various different ways in which people can have combined experiences. Um, so the traditional definition is about an extra way of experiencing the senses, a fusion of senses, but it's actually a bit more complicated than that. So sometimes some synesthetes experience um, fusions of various senses in response to one stimulus, and sometimes it's concepts as well. So it can be um, at all levels in the system. So synesthesia can be perceptual, but it can also be um, more in terms of how we organize the world. Um, so that's just one one type of synesthesia, but there's lots and lots and lots of different types. Um, it's something that um, occurs in about 4% of the population. Um, but I have done some research that suggests that actually the tendencies um, are a bit more than that. Um, so you can have tendencies towards synesthesia as well as being a synesthete. And the tendencies um, tend to correlate with um, other aspects of anomaly proneness, so other people who are more likely to have um, a range of exceptional, including paranormal experiences, that, that tends to sort of relate to that. Um, and they and some people tend to have synesthesias more when they are in altered states of consciousness as well. So it might be that they might have had um, a sort of what I call contextual synesthesia that happens when you might be in a meditative state or um, in a state where you're shifting between wakefulness and sleep in the hypnagogic state. Um, there's also induced synesthesias that happen in the context of hypnosis and in psychedelic states. So there's lots of people that might have them contextually like that. And it looks like people who are more um, anomaly prone, um, who have other traits, um, will be the ones who might be more likely to have those contextual types of synesthesia I think more research needs to be done but I think there's something there too so I think it's much more common as a tendency um, but it's something that I think is really interesting for us in terms of further understanding consciousness generally um, but particularly as a parapsychologist to understand um, experiences that look psychic and experiences that might actually be psychic as well let me re try and paraphrase what you said about synesthesia to make sure our viewers get it. Uh, the way I think of it is we have what I'd call a sensorium, the way in which sensory information is displayed in our mind, auditory, visual, and then we have all these inputs. And a, a person with synesthesia, they might take a an, say an auditory input and display it in their mind visually or vice versa. So, so there are more, one might say there are more neural connections available to them. Absolutely. And that is an actual correlate of various synestheses that there's, there's more neural connectivity, um, either structurally or chemically. The, the mind is more connected with itself. The brain is more connected with itself. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what's happening. Um, but it's just extremely interesting that they are extremely idiosyncratic, even for the same type. So one person might have, as you say, something internal. But as I mentioned before, some people might have that experience out in space. So um, the auditory stimulus might be colored. And so for one person, it's, oh, that's a beautiful blue. I know it's a blue. I can see it if I look up into my mind's eye. But someone else might have little blue um, scribbles occurring in space or actually around the body. Sometimes uh, some people have very embodied um, synesthesias. But yeah, it's about connection, ultimately, about being more connected with yourself. And I think that's a key in terms of thinking about why it might be related to anomaly proneness. And so with regard to parapsychology, if you're receiving information, let's say from a, an extra sense that uh, is not normally accounted for, it might display itself in your mind through visually or auditorially, if that's a word. Uh, <laughs> I think I made that one up just now, or even through the tactile senses. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think exactly. So, what we're talking about is a, a weak 
stimulus, like something that is not present physically and locally, but it is present. It's a weak stimulus, either in time or space. And somehow the synesthete is more sensitive to information. And I think it's associated with meaning. Um, and Ed May has written a lot about this. He has an interesting model of, of Psy that incorporates synesthesia as part of his model, which I think is interesting. Um, so I think synesthetes are better able to, um, first of all, detect that information. Um, and secondly, to re-represent it to the self. So because of these um, extra connections, I mean, it might be that the information is not coming in through any of the senses or all of the senses, but it's very, very weak. It's, it's in the body, um, but it's not normally um, reaching a threshold that is going to enable the person to have a strong enough um, signal to enable conscious binding, I suppose. But a synesthete has more going on. And so if there's more going on, neurologically and psychologically it's much more likely that that information is going to be um represented to the self um and so it's it might be for one person who isn't a synesthete that it's you know you, you might still feel the information or it's still going to bias your behavior or your mood um or other aspects of your um your being as an organism but you might not have access to that information consciously or you might have just um a twinge <laughs> you might have something but you won't know what it is or as a synesthete might have um a representation because the um there's much more sensitivity and integration of that information into a representable um tangible downloadable um thing that can then be available to the cell so it might be that it's just a blob but it still is a blob rather than um you know, an unconscious biasing. So I think they're much more able to see and feel and yes, all the senses maybe, the different ways of being than others. So in your research, you use the psychomantium amongst other uh, research studies and, and you brought people who were synesthetes into a psychomantium. Now, there's a long history to psychomantiums and we better explain that for our viewers who may not be familiar. Yes, and it's just right next to me here, actually. I'm sitting right next to the psychomantium as we speak. Um, yes, it, um, it's an ancient practice that dates back throughout history. Um, it's practiced in different cultures. Essentially, it's scrying. It's a similar process to reading the tea leaves, um, but it's looking into a shiny surface with intention. Um, and so Raymond Moody is responsible for bringing that into the modern era. So in the early 90s, um, he developed the psychomantium paradigm um, using mirror gazing. Um, and it's so interesting when you start reading about it because you realize just how much folklore is just embedded with this. Um, in Disney movies, you know, you've got people looking into mirrors and trying to find out about the future or what is their destiny or um, any secrets that they need to, <laughs> to learn about. So the psychomantium is a way in which human beings have um, tried to divine the future or um, interact with, um, with entities. So um, the way that's been used a lot in parapsychology is to um, enable interactions with um, deceased loved ones. Um, and so it, you know, we can be neutral on whether it's real or not real, but the process itself is very successful in encouraging experiences of um, apparitions and sensed presences that are associated with a deceased, deceased loved one. And so um, whether it's for divining the future or engaging with deceased individuals, the process is similar. There's an intention um, that is really important as part of the process. Um, so in the psychomantium, you, you do have to spend a lot of time helping a person bring the intention into mind. So for the psychomantium, as we've used it, we spent 15 minutes um, encouraging a person to bring in artifacts, um, relating to a deceased loved one um, or a deceased person they had a meaningful connection with. It had to be somebody who was deceased. 
Um, and I think we only had two people in our study who picked famous people who they didn't know, but they had they picked people who they felt um, a connection with. So we had people setting up little altars in here, bringing in um, photographs. One person even brought ashes um, of their deceased loved one into the room. So I'm sitting here now, so it's all coming back to me. Um, so intention is, is a really, really, really huge part of it. Um, we also had music in ours and um, we we tried to sort of help people get into a place where they could really connect with themselves. So we used music that was supposed to help um, encourage a really relaxed state of body and mind. Um, and we offered an opportunity to discuss that person. We helped the people to um, think about what it was that um, this person was like. Um, so they spent some time writing. They drew. I'm sitting next to art materials as well now. They, we asked them to um, represent the person um, with art. And then after that, we asked people to go into the chamber. So the psychomantium um, mirror gazing procedure is where you would go into um, a darkened chamber. So I'm looking over here. Um, ours is... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a copper wall chamber, actually. It's a um, sound attenuated, um, magnetically shielded chamber um, that we used for a previous study. And we covered the walls in black velvet. So it's supposed to be really nice and it is a really nice relaxing area. We've got a reclining chair in there. And then we have a mirror um, that is arranged at a 45 degree angle. Well, it is when the person's sitting there. It's very cozy in there. Um, and the people are asked to go into the, the psychomantium chamber and continue to um, think about the deceased loved one and gaze into the mirror, but not forcing anything, trying to sort of let information um, come into their mind and body and just observe anything that happened um, during the, um, the time they were in there. So they were in there for 45 minutes. So that's essentially the, the, the procedure for interacting with loved ones so we asked people to observe we asked people to verbalize if they felt comfortable doing that and we had a voice recorder in the room um, we also monitored the environment um, and the the body so we wanted to look at uh, physical and physiological correlates as well as subjective experiences so the study was looking at all sorts of things but we wanted to really see whether um, there were differences in who reported um, more convincing, more lifelike apparitional experiences during the, the psychomantium period, and then how those experiences correlated with um, random number generator output, um, the um, heart rate variability, that was our physical measure. Um, and then we had a local um, EMF meter, and we also looked at global GMF, because we wanted to see how all those things um, interrelated. And we were looking to see whether anything was captured on an infrared camera. So we had um, a camera running as well that was sort of facing in front of the mirror area. So we, try we tried not to um, not to put the person at disease. We wanted them to feel like, you know, you're not being watched, but we're going to see whether um, we, we find anything coming up on the on the film. So we also had a baseline period too. So we filmed for the same period of time, ran random number generator during that baseline period as well and put all the equipment in the room and sat here in the same way um, as we would for an actual session. So those things were going on there. So you were comparing, uh, I assume, people who were synesthetes uh, with a, a control group of people who were not particularly gifted in that department. Yes, absolutely. Um, but we we wanted to maximize the um, likelihood that people might have an apparition anyway. Um, and so um, Moody had encouraged people and other previous research found that people who um, had had prior ghost experiences would do better um, and have more likelihood of experience. And so we selected people who had all had a prior experience with a ghost. And then within that group, we tried to find um, a group, a subgroup of people who were um, strong synesthetes. Um, but what I'll say is it's very difficult to find um, strong synesthetes and ghost experiences who are open to coming into the psychomantium. Um, and my graduate assistant and I talked about this a lot and we felt that some of the synesthetes that were interested but declined were really sensitive. 
And I think that is um, something to keep in mind with us. They're very sensitive, almost too sensitive and 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 didn't want to, to do that. So I think some of our synesthetes um, had had less ghost experiences than the ghost the, the, the control group oh. yes um they had some so that was one of the that was the criteria but they didn't have as many as the people that were in the control group which might be why we didn't find any differences between the two in terms of the experiences in there as like okay did you have these experiences um but yeah and the synesthetes as well i mean i would have liked to have had more strong synesthetes but it's really hard to find them it's four percent of the population um, so we had some, I think 10 people were strong synesthetes and I think it was five that were um, synesthetic tendencies. So they displayed tendencies, but they didn't um, score um, as synesthetes according to um, the synesthesia battery, which is a standard way of exploring synesthesia. So I, I guess the problem is that not every encounter with a ghost or apparition uh, is going to be a beautiful, loving moment, a, a reconnection with a deceased loved one. It, it might be experienced as an intrusion. It could be, although what we found was that most people's experiences were very positive, actually, um, in at least that happened in, in here. And then as a result of the the wider ghost study, we, you know, we found lots of different types of ghosts um, were reported. Um, and the ones that seem to be more frightening are not the ones that we're talking about in the context of the psychomantium. The ones that seem to be the most frightening are the ones that actually we could explain away more mundanely. Um, so those ones tend to be the ones that are um, aligned with sleep paralysis or could be look like they might be aligned with sleep paralysis particularly where that's combined with um, you know a location which has a haunted story or if the person was on their own so if the person's on their own waking up in the middle of the night there's a story those are the ones that, that are much more intrusive I'd say the ones that are about interactions with deceased loved ones um, seem like they're an opportunity for um, reconnection, for, um, yeah, just for, for therapeutic um, closure, I'd say. And that's what Hastings was finding um, with, with his research. But we noticed it in here. And even, even in this context, in an artificial situation, um, some of the encounters that people experienced in there were just incredibly powerful um, and so, yes, yeah, sometimes people were upset, um, but it was a pleasant upset. And that's how it was described. It was referred to as a way, uh, you know, a, a just a very beautiful opportunity to um, to reconnect, I think. You describe the synesthetes, though, as people much more open to paranormal experience. And at the same time, if I understand, you're saying uh, they're rare, only 4% of the population. And amongst the people you identified as synesthetes, some of them apparently refused to go into the psychomantium, I assume, because they didn't want to get overwhelmed. Yes, or they didn't want to... Um engage with the idea of ghosts and so i think you know we've also got to think about where the university of west georgia is located in the south we have a very strong um religious influence down here so i think we can't take that away from the culture in which i'm conducting this study as well um so yeah i think that they are having these experiences that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is comfortable with it um, because I think experiences are always interpreted within the culture in which they're happening in. You know, so if there's an idea that a ghost is scary and you're asked to go and encounter a ghost, you're putting yourself into a situation where you're feeling like you might be scared, even if that's not the case. And like I said, I don't think that's what is supported at all by by the research, but those ideas are there. So I think that's it. And if a synesthete knows that they're sensitive, they have things that happen that might be why some of them didn't take part and I don't know I mean I, I can't necessarily know um, why people chose not to participate I can just talk about the people who who were 
in the study, but it's something that I'm thinking about as I'm writing this study up because we are still writing that up. It's pretty fresh off the press. Um, so it's, it's, and it does seem to be the case. I've been digging into this, that synesthetes are more sensitive. So it would, a lot of those things connect. You might also find that they're more sensitive to those cultural ideas as well. You know, different, different types of information, um, could be there as well. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very fascinating. Of the people who were not synesthetes, though they still reported having had ghost experiences, they were more willing to go into the psychomantium in general than the synesthetes. Would that be correct? Some of them were, yes. I had an easier time finding people who wanted to participate who weren't synesthetes. But that's, you know, I found that before. Um, that's not to say that some people weren't hesitant because, again, we're you know, we have this cultural backdrop here. So I think some people, um, you know, there's a tension there. They want to take part. They want to um, experience something, particularly in relation to the person that they were wanting to connect with. But there's still this hesitance there. Um, and so I think some people, um, you know, weren't as open, even though they were. It's interesting um, when they were in the study, in the control group. Yeah. And then sometimes I think if they'd had a lot of experiences in their life, it seemed to us, the, the research team, that when they went into that chamber, they were less likely to have something happen in there. So I think that was happening, too. So a lot of the people who weren't synesthetes had had lots of prior experiences and it wasn't going to happen in there or it, it happened in there, but it happened in a, um, you know, a sort of watered down way. Um, whereas if people hadn't had those experiences um, in their lives, it was more impactful, I think, in the chamber. So that's part of it, too. Um, so and maybe that's it. So if you have not had the encounter, you're going to be more likely to have the encounter. If you've had an encounter, you might be less likely to have another one, particularly under a situation where you're in a study and I'm watching them. <laughs> You, you know, it reminds me of a line from uh, the song Ghostbusters. Uh, uh, I'm not afraid of no ghosts. Uh, there's a certain personality type, I think, uh, probably tends to be skeptical that wants to go into a supposed haunted house just to prove that there's nothing there. Yeah, and I think that's there too. I think sometimes people would be in our psychomantium and they would come out and say, nothing happened. And then we'd have a conversation and I was like, well, look, I'm not pushing you to say anything, but what, tell me what did happen. And then they would, you know, they would talk about how there were little dots of light. And I'm like, well, I'm interested in tiny things. I'm not, you know, I want to know exactly what you experienced. And I'm not going to ask you to tell me that was a ghost. I want to know what happened in a sort of phenomenological way. So I think some people were very quick to say nothing happened <laughs> because I think they were expecting something bigger to happen. And sometimes it was just tiny things like little dots of light, but that's still really fascinating to me. Um, and then whether they're going to package that up as a ghost or not a ghost is interesting to me as well. Um, but absolutely, I think there is definitely something to that. Um, you know, people who are going to be open to experiences aren't always open to experiences. It's very complicated. Human beings are interesting. Well, one of the uh, characteristics that you seem to from your writing, associate with the anomaly-prone personality is, uh, I think you describe it as thinness of boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so that is a term um, that Ernest Hartman developed, but it's it's ancient as well. So you can see it echoing throughout the history of psychology and parapsychology. For example, in Meyer's work, you see the idea of boundaries um, inherent in his work. So it's not a new a new um, concept. Um, but it keeps coming back. And so you see it in Ernest Hartman's work and you see it in um, the Thalban transliminality construct. Um, but you dig a little deeper and you also see it in related constructs. So my PhD is on schizotypy and um, schizotypy um, has similar features to all of to transliminality and boundary thinness. And so it seems like it is a personality type or clusters um, that have fluidity in thoughts and feelings. So immediately you can start seeing how that might relate to synesthesia where things connect. 
Um, there's less um, inhibition in the nervous system. So the hemispheres can talk to each other more. Um, there's more influence of the body and the unconscious um, to the conscious mind. Um, there is greater physical sensitivity. So there's um, some other interesting work from Mike Jower and others like looking at um, environmental sensitivity. That relates too. It's all part of the same cluster. So people who are very hypersensitive, um, hyperesthesia, people who have like um, a sensitivity to light and sound, um, it's all these things cluster together in these different um, constructs, so transliminality, boundary thinness, schizotypy. Um, so basically there is like increased arousal as well so that these people are um, perhaps in a different baseline wake, baseline state in their waking state. So they're in a waking state that is more fluid. So the waking state in a liminal person might be a bit more like a more sleepy state in somebody who is not boundary thin or transliminal. They're also very fluid in terms of how they move into altered states. So they're very fluid. They'll jump much more easily into um, altered states from the waking state. And so the idea there is that, okay, some people might have paranormal experiences under extreme circumstances who aren't necessarily boundary thin all the time, but they might be pushed to boundary thinness. For example, sleep deprivation might be one thing, it causes them to be more fluid, like a boundary thin person. But some people are trait boundary thin and they have these systems that are wired to be more um, fluid um, generally. And so boundary thinness does correlate with with synesthesia. So I think synesthesia is a is a type of, of boundary thinness too. It's a it's a fluid way of being. So you will see things like, oh, um, the world is not black versus white. It's about shades of grey. Um, there is um, more wakefulness in sleepy states, more sleepy states in waking states. Um, everything's a bit more interconnected and fluid. People get very close to other people. Um, there's been very little work on how empathy relates, but it does, I think. There's a couple of studies that suggest that empathy does relate. Um, yeah, so it's about being connected to the environment more, to other people more, to the self more. Um, and so I think you can start seeing how that might relate to psi phenomena. So if somebody's more sensitive um, to what might be lurking in the unconscious and the body, they might be much more aware of um, perhaps psi information. If psi information is registering first, physiologically and that's where a lot of the recent research on implicit size is leading actually can you distinguish clearly between schizotypy and schizophrenia or other forms of psychosis so this is a can of worms so i'll, I'll do my short version <laughs> so there's um there's different constructs of schizotypy we'll say that different approaches to understanding it um the british approach and so i'm british i came from that background um, is influenced by um, Gordon Claridge's approach to schizotypy. And that approach suggests that um, you might see traits that um, might mimic what you see in schizophrenia, but in watered down forms, the traits can have value. Um, whereas the more Chapman US idea of schizotypy is that if you see traits that are watered down schizophrenia, it's watered down um, pathology. So you've got sort of elements of pathology um, in your system. I think both schools would agree that they that schizotypy relates to paranormal belief and paranormal experience and transpersonal experiences, but they would have different ways of understanding that perhaps. Um, so it does relate um, to schizophrenia, although schizophrenia is another complete can of worms. Um, I suppose the idea might be that you could see different levels of expression of any, any, um, you know, anything like that. Um, in high levels of expression, um, you might see more likelihood of certain types of um, behaviour. So in schizotype, you might see um, tendencies to have meaning making and creativity 
and spirituality and paranormal ideation. Um, but what we see actually is that that is those traits seem to be um, distinct from pathology. Um, the pathological aspects um, seem to be associated with the other types of schizotypy. So there's there's different types of schizotypy. There's positive schizotypy, negative, impulsive, and disorganized. Um, and so the things that look like what we see as schizophrenia is often the positive traits, like hallucinations, perceptual distortions. That um, you know you could easily say, oh, well, paranormal experiences are all pathological. Um, but actually, what makes those pathological is how we react to them. Um, and so a lot of my work's focused on the traits as they're playing out in the, um, you know, the general population. And what we see is that people who have these traits, these watered down traits that look a bit like the schizophrenic traits, um, you know, can be less healthy, but they can be more than healthy. Um, and so there's a healthy schizotype and there's a less healthy schizotype. So healthy schizotype will have the positive traits, but um less of the others less of the social isolation less of the um impulses less of the disorganization very organized in fact makes sense um it's appraised positively um and and so we don't often see the differences there if we just look at scores on a questionnaire but they are different um and there's not enough research yet on those differences but um nicola holt and i found some evidence that the healthy schizotype was actually more efficiently filtering out the psi stimulus. So there's something there about the healthy schizotype. So it does relate, it echoes schizophrenia, um, but it would be very easy to say that it's echoing pathology when I don't think that's necessarily the case. It's much more complicated than that. So hopefully that answers your question in a short way. Well, it's, it's a fascinating and obviously very complicated topic, but I also want to touch on the question of temporal lobe volatility, which has been associated with people who have many spontaneous paranormal experiences. And that is another one that, that um, clusters in with the, the variables that we've talked about so far. Um, and so if you look at how temporal lobability correlates with schiz positive schizotypy and transliminality and boundary thinness, it's, it's pretty up there. It's pretty high. And so that is understood to be how connected the temporal lobe limbic areas are with the rest of the brain. Um, it's, it's associated with how um, we shift easily between states of consciousness it correlates with dissociation too, like how much we kind of jump into these different states. It is part of the cluster, I think, of anomaly-prone variables. So uh, when you start digging deeper, you start seeing this pattern emerging of related variables. So some of them are more about fluidity and jumping into different states. Others seem to be more about connecting, but they all tend to sort of relate to one another. And I suppose that's where we get to the <clears throat> transliminality construct as one of the better ways of understanding this, because that was developed from a factor analysis that had a lot of variables put into it. And it seems like that is something like all of them put together. It's about connectivity. It's about um, tendencies to jump into altered states that relate to the temporal lobes. I'm pointing out, I've just been teaching my underwear class and that's, where are your temporal lobes? <laughs> <laughs> tendencies to shift into different states i think and um people who have more labile temporal lobes um will be much more you know much more likely to be creative and shift into different states which sounds a lot like um other aspects of um lability and liminality so i think they are part of the same the same construct like liminal labile individuals there's also the issue uh, that we started to talk about and have been touching on throughout state versus trait. Uh, can you elaborate on that? There's a lot of evidence from parapsychological research that certain states of consciousness seem to be much more aligned with subjective experiences, but also a more ostensible sign in the lab. So if we move away from our, you know, left brain, <clears throat> excuse me, left brain focused rational thinking into a more fluid state we see more psi experiences and we also see more um psi success um in various studies actually across the board um and so you can think about that as a state 
of of consciousness that is um, anomaly prone because it encourages anomalous experiences or exceptional experiences. Um, so that's a state. Um, people who are trait anomaly prone, I think, are probably more likely to be jumping into those states more often than other, than other people because of the way that they're wired. But they might all be reaching the same place, um, if we can think about it in that sort of metaphor. Um, so sometimes for some people, you know, they might have never had a paranormal experience. So we talked about how if somebody's really sleep deprived, they might um, have a paranormal experience as a one off. They might particularly have one if they're bereaved and they've had no sleep. Those things are really connected. Um, that person might not have had any paranormal experience up until that point or maybe have any after that. But they might. It might change them. Um, that could be understood to be a state um, of anomaly proneness. Um, other people might be more likely to dip into those states as a more trait way of being because of the way that they're wired, because their arousal systems are more fluid, um, because they're more used to jumping into these different states. They might enter the same place on a more regular basis or they might move in and out of places more, more regularly um, than people who um, are not trait anomaly prone. But to complex, complicate it more, I think that you know, you've got to think about interaction effects too. So if you look at the Gansfeld, for example, and who does better in the Gansfeld, who is doing better in the Gansfeld? Classic example, creatives. Um, so there might be some recipe going on here. Um, you've got an induction procedure that is designed to induce an altered state. And people who are more fluid anyway um, are, are responding to that particularly well and entering a really nice psychoinducive state and doing very well the Gansford. So I think you've got to think about that as well. So, um, and I know that Etzel Cardini talks a lot about this and the differences between an induction procedure and natural induced state. They're very different. Uh, let's just define the Gansfeld, though, because some of our viewers won't know what it is. Okay, yeah. So the Gansfeld is um, from the German meaning whole field, and that comes from the induction procedure. So we talked about that just now. So an induction procedure is designed to encourage a particular state. And the Gansfeld was originally um, designed to encourage a state that's similar to um, a lot of states in the real world where people report subjective paranormal experiences. And that often happens when people are in a hypnagogic half state between wakefulness and sleep. Um, and so the Gansfeld um, has several components to it. So first of all, you have relaxation instructions. You also are um, restricting the sense that so you're going to be listening to pink noise. And pink noise is different from white noise because it's nicer. It sounds more like um, rushing water than static. Um, so some studies have used the static, but it's just much more pleasant to have um, noise that's a bit more like water. Um, and so you also have your visual sense restricted. So you will be wearing oftentimes half ping pong balls. And the ping pong balls um, are connected in various ways. People have tried different ways to do this. Um, I was taught to put surgical tape around the edges of mine um, and by Deborah, by Deborah Delanoy. And the person would then have their eyes open during the Gansfeld session and they would be bathed in red light. You'd also be in a um, dimmed chamber, relaxing in a reclining chair. Um, and that set of procedures, so relaxing and then listening to this pink noise and having a homogenous visual field is designed to um, encourage the senses to turn inward. So essentially you are habituating to the sound and the visual field. And after a while, you um, your attention turns inward and you start noticing more of your internal world. Um, so I've run myself through this several times as well, and it's, it's really quite an interesting experience, especially as you move from a novice into knowing how your mind works in this. It's really interesting. Um, so now my experience of being in the Gansville will be that after a while, I would start experiencing more imagery. Um, and so the idea of the Gansfeld is that it can be used to assess ESP, extrasensory perception. So oftentimes it's set up as a telepathy design. So you might have a sender um, in another room or another building even. And the sender would be um, attempting to 
um, send, psychically send a target to the person who's in the Gansfeld, the receiver. And so the receiver is watching their imagery, watching their experience and verbalizing. And the idea is that the sent imagery might influence the receiver's imagery. Um, and so um, it is actually pretty interesting. Sometimes it, it does. At the end of the sending period, you would see um, four possible um, targets. One's the target, one's the de one, uh, four decoys. Um, so you don't know which is which. And the idea is that you are going to look at the four and if Psy is happening, if Psy is influencing your imagery, um, you're going to be more likely to select the actual target um, compared to the decoys. Um, but the state of consciousness is um, very, very interesting. And it is in some ways similar to the hypnagogic state, but it's not exactly like that. Um, it seems like it's probably more similar to a meditative state or hypnosis because you are sort of relaxed and focused at the same time you're vigilant your um your mind is sort of seeking something from outside so it's it's not completely like the the hypnagogic state but it's supposed to be hypnagoid it's like the hypnagogic state hypnagoid i've not heard that word before that's nice so i i guess in terms of traits that people who naturally can enter into the, the sort of state you described, similar to the Gansfeld, with a, a quiet, relaxed mind and an internal focus, are uh, people who have uh, boundary thinness and are able more readily to access psi information. Sometimes, but again, we've got to keep in mind that there are different types of um, boundary thin persons. So we talked about schizotypy just now. You know, there, there might be boundary thin people who feel overwhelmed by their imagery and others that are more able to dip in and out. And I think people who are um, more able to dip in and out of those boundary thin states are the ones that are more healthy and probably the ones that are going to be more psychic. Um, and I think it's something that can change over time um, because I think with my own experience, I think when I first went into the Gansfeld, it was oh, wow, look at this. And so now if I go into the Gansford, I would have more flashes, moments, rather than being overwhelmed. So I think that's a distinction. And I know when I've had the more moment type experiences, those have been the ones that I have seen relating more to a target in my own um, testing of myself when I run myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's just boundary thinness per se. It's, it's particular types of boundary thinness because you could say that you're opening up the filter and there's different ways to control that filter. So you could have information flooding in and then you wouldn't necessarily be able to pull out a sigh stimulus from the noise. But if you're able to dip in and be more mindful, so I think it is a lot like mindfulness, um, you can notice what might be a bit different to your normal experience or what looks different, um, if that makes sense. Well, I, I guess it's worth pointing out, to my knowledge, the strongest uh, factor that correlates with laboratory psi is actually the belief system, the sheep-goat effect, essentially. Whether people believe they can or believe they can't seems to be the, the single strongest variable. Absolutely. And, you know, belief in paranormal phenomena correlates very highly with all of these variables. They, they all strongly interconnect with one another. Um, you can have people who are anomaly prone and end up being more more skeptical. Absolutely. And I, I've definitely been studying that lately. And I've, you, it is a thing. And I call those anomaly prone skeptics. But yes, people who um, tend to have experiences oftentimes will be also the ones who have um, beliefs as well. So that is absolutely part of it. Um, and yes, um, it, it is one of the strongest predictors. But also, you know, practicing a mental discipline um, was one of the key factors that uh, relate, was found to relate to Gansfeld performance too. So there's a cluster of things that, that fit together. Um, but the sheep goat effect is one of the one of the biggies, absolutely. You mentioned practicing a discipline, and I assume uh, the most uh, relevant disciplines are probably meditation. Yes, yeah. But, I mean, I suppose you could also be a regular um, self-hypnotizer, because, I, again, I think it's a, a similar 
um, place. And I think those kind of practices can help people to gain control of their experiences outside of experiments as well. But yeah, absolutely. Mental discipline would be something like that. Any, you know, and there's lots of different types of meditation. And I don't know whether it necessarily matters which type, but I think it is practicing the art of being um, maybe vigilant and focused and relaxed at the same time, because that is really what we're talking about here. We're not talking about being completely relaxed, just relaxed. It's 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 something else, I think, that's going on um, in terms of enabling um, sight to happen consciously when it does happen. Well, Christine Simmons-Moore, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's amazing to me all of the complexities that go into human consciousness as it relates to, to psychic functioning, but you certainly seem to have a handle on it. I just find it extremely fascinating. I really do. And as soon as we finish to study, I've, I've got ideas for the next one. So, um, yes, I, I think they all connect as well. Like I say, synesthesia boundary thinness it's like a <laughs> it's like a rabbit hole honestly once you've gone down it you can't leave <laughs> well christine thank you so much for being with me this has been a wonderful conversation and i hope uh, that we can have more in the future that sounds great it's been wonderful spending time with you today thank you for inviting me and for those of you watching thank you for being with us <laughs>